0: Listening to the demise of the podcast with Patrick Hathaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, Kurt Vonnegut's writing as we get into one of my favorite novels, Cat's Cradle. This is episode 100 of the podcast. Can you believe it? Did you listen to episode 99 where I ranted for an hour? That was great, wasn't it? I don't really have a whole lot to say before we get into the book today, so we might start reading and analyzing, and discussing all about Cat's Cradle before the 10-minute mark. But you're used to that shit by now. If you're unfamiliar with the podcast, this is not an audiobook podcast. Basically, I read and I analyze the writing, usually just talk about the subject matter, what's going on in the story, through that old English 1101 analytical lens, I am almost done with my masters in English, so we're getting close to me being a master at this, if you can believe that. I can maybe move from an 1101 model to an 1102 model, where we talk about boobs. My wife is in the living room watching rain right now, so if you hear any background noise, it's her in the other room. I no longer have the futon and the guitar room slash office where I record the podcast. So I don't know if that's going to affect things acoustically or not, but it was very sad. My niece stayed over for the weekend. And as per usual, I brought the futon from the office into the bedroom so she could sleep in the same room with us. And that ended with me breaking the futon because my wife wanted me to, climb over it to put my niece's Christmas present in the closet as to hide it from her. And in doing so, I fell, slipped on the now-broken futon, and landed on my ass. Thankfully, it was a soft surface, and I just slid instead of just going kerplunk. And only a few moments ago, I threw it away in the dumpster. So... It is gone from my life forever. There's a story behind the futon. If you'd like to hear it, man, I didn't think I'd get to tell this story today. And this is my podcast. If you don't want to listen to it, well, fuck you. I broke up with my girlfriend of eight years in 2014, and I allowed her to stay in the house until she finished the semester, because I broke up with her on Labor Day, September 2014. And I originally had an air mattress that I was sleeping in this room, and it kept getting holes poked in it somehow. I wonder how that happened. And I decided to upgrade using money that my grandmother gave me for my birthday, because I was a good little boy. And I bought a futon for about 150 bucks from Kmart. And I slept in the spare room, and I did all my schoolwork, I ate all my meals, well not all my meals, I ate some in the living room, but I mostly spent my time in that room that used to be the guitar room, and also used to be my playroom when my mother and I first moved in this house. She moved out in 2011, and I've just stayed here forever. Wasn't that a great story? I'm bored with myself, so we might as well get into Kurt Vonnegut. I read five Kurt Vonnegut books in one week. I want to say in early 2014, maybe. No, it was 2013 because I remember mentioning it in class. I read Jailbird, then Slaughterhouse-Five, then Cat's Cradle, um, Breakfast of Champions, and I think The Sirens of Titan. And I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't like the latter two. So, I really love Vonnegut, but not all of his books are for me. I've tried to read Mother Night several times, and I was never in the right headspace for it. I don't want to read about Nazi Germany or World War II anymore. It's fucking depressing. Especially as I get older. I got tired of, of hearing about it as a, as a kid, too, because it was always... brought up in history courses to the point where I was kind of desensitized to it. So, in college, hearing about it again, yeah, I'd I'd already heard about the Holocaust and whatnot, but I've gotten older and somehow more sensitive to things like that. I guess because I understand the human condition a little bit more, and I understand suffering a little bit more. Not a child anymore. Yeah. Um, One of my colleagues at my new job said that one of the reasons why I have an issue with um, real-life violence now is because I am at an age where I could have children of my own and I could see them going through that, but I don't know. It all really started with, I used to be really desensitized to everything, but around 2016, when I heard a compilation of 911 calls that people made, and for some reason it just chilled me, And ever since, I've been a little bit more sensitive to violence, especially against women and children. Anyway, this is a great introduction to this book, is it not? Me talking about bullshit that nobody cares about. But that's what you came here for, isn't it? Anyway, Cat's Cradle is in my top five novels i like it even more than slaughterhouse five i think that cat's cradle and slaughterhouse five are obviously his best works i liked bluebeard i haven't read hocus pocus i have a copy of god bless you i think it's mr rosewater I haven't read it um every time I, I start i just for some reason can't you ever get in one of those moods anyway We're going to just start reading the first chapter. These chapters are very short, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with the book. It's called The Day the World Ended. Call me Jonah. My parents did, or nearly did. They called me John. Jonah, John. If I'd been a Sam, I would have been a Jonah still. Not because I have been unlucky for others, but because somebody or something has compelled me to be certain places at certain times without fail. Conveyances and motives, both conventional and bizarre, have been provided. And according to plan, at each appointed second, at each appointed place, this Jonah was there. Listen. When I was a younger man two wives ago, 250,000 cigarettes ago, 3,000 quarts of booze ago. When I was a much younger man, I began to collect material for a book to be called The Day the World Ended. The book was to be factual. The book was to be an account of what important Americans had done on the day when the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. It was to be a Christian book. I was a Christian then. We finished the first page of the novel. Now, it may be different in other editions if you're following along. I definitely don't want you following along because I'm going to fuck things up. But anyway, call me Jonah. Well, we are aware of the biblical analysis and the significance of Jonah. There's a VeggieTales movie about Jonah. You should go watch it. You'll learn all about Jonah being swallowed by a whale. But... Realistically, I know almost nothing about Jonah outside of that story and having watched VeggieTales. I have talked about the Bible in here before. I don't care to do it right now, but we're being sucked into it by Kurt Vonnegut, are we not? I mean, the last line of the page is it was to be a Christian book. I was a Christian then. And something I'd never really put together, despite it being on the first page, is that This man has been married twice, smokes a lot, and drinks a lot, but the novel presents him as more of a younger man, so I haven't read this since 2017. I remember I started my job that I was at for four years until October, and I was talking to one of my colleagues about how I was rereading Vonnegut's stuff, so that's my point of reference for that. That is all very nonsensical bullshit to you, I'm sure, since everything that comes out of my face is distorted nonsense. But Jonah, John, if I'd been a Sam, I would have been a Jonah still. Yes, he would have been unlucky, and yet he would have been called upon without his consent. There are some people who are like that, who are always meant to help people, even if they don't want to. And even if they don't really help, they're just put in those situations. I am a Bacchananist now. I would have been a Bacchananist then, if there had been anyone to teach me the bittersweet lies of Bacchanan. But Bacchanism is unknown beyond the gravel beaches, coral knives, that ring, this little island in the Caribbean Sea, the Republic of San Lorenzo. We Bacchanists believe that humanity is organized into teams teams that will do God's will without ever discovering what we are doing. Such a, te- such a team is called a kaross by Bakanon and the instrument that can-can. That brought me into my own particular kaross was the book I never finished, the book to be called The Day the World Ended. By the way, if you're not familiar with this book prior to re- to me reading this to you on the podcast, For one thing, if you read it by yourself, you won't have me fucking things up along the way, but you will also have a complete understanding of the ending. So the first part of this book is kind of a critique of then-contemporary America and the significance of nostalgia and Americana. The second part of the novel is less grounded and it takes place on this island, and there's this thing called Ice Nine that soaks up all the water and moisture around it. It's just... it's a lot, and it's hard to explain unless I'm reading it, so we're going to get to that, hopefully. Don't expect me to explain something to you when you haven't even read the fucking book. Come on. I I know why you're listening to this. It's because... Someone assigned you this book in a class, and you just don't feel like reading it. So you want someone to summarize it for you. And I'm not here for that, goddammit. I'm here for the love of writing and jerking off. The second chapter is called Nice, Nice, Very Nice. If you find your life tangled up with somebody else's life for no logical reasons, writes Bakanon. That person may be a member of your kaross. At another point in the books of Bacchanon, he tells us man created the checkerboard, God created the kaross. By that, he means that a karras ignores national, institutional, occupational, familial, familial, and class boundaries. It is as free form as an amoeba. In his 53rd Calypso, Bacchanon invites us to sing along with him. Oh, a sleeping drunkard up in Central Park and a lion hunter in the jungle dark and a Chinese dentist and a British queen all fit together in the same machine. Nice, nice, very nice. Nice, nice, very nice. Nice, nice, very nice. So many different people in the same device. If you're not familiar with the Korean musician humming urban stereo you should check him out because he has a song called very nice that's kind of similar to this it's jazzy and the only lyric is just nice nice very nice over and over again but if you're unfamiliar with calypso music it's been re-recorded and repurposed by so many different white guys but it i believe it originated in the caribbean And I'm not going to bother fact-checking myself right now. You can do that. After all, I am very low energy today, and I just don't have the time for it. Look, I'm on a tight schedule here. I have to go eat dinner around 5 o'clock. I have to watch The Sopranos. I have to sit on my ass, and then I have to go to bed. So... If you think that you're more important than my sit down on my ass time, you're just fucking wrong. But I like Calypso music when it's generally when it's repurposed by white people. I'm not familiar with the original style as much because I'm ignorant. But uh, Steely Dan have done it. Uh, the Rippingtons have done it. It's been done. Uh, you can sometimes hear in Cosby Show stuff those little aside and. Um, intermittent pieces of music. By the way, the House of Love Cosby Show soundtrack is a very good jazz album. The third chapter is called Folly. Nowhere does Bakanan warn against a person's trying to discover the limits of his karas and the nature of the work God Almighty has to do with it. By the way, most of the book's not like this. If you were to pick up this book and you were to start reading all this religion crap, you'd probably be like, what the fuck? And you'd put it down. And I don't know, maybe I was just really open-minded and I understood the humor of this, which I'm not really um, conveying as well. But this is all very satirical and tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the fact that he's invented this religion in here is just another crazy vonnegutism. I mean, this man was was interesting, to say the least, but all of his sense of humor came from this weird place, and I think with Breakfast of Champions, it went off the rails. I'm going to skip ahead. The protagonist of this novel receives a letter from Newt Honecker. I believe that's his name. And he goes looking for the gentleman, and that's really all you need to know. I'm on page 20, chapter 9, Vice President in Charge of Volcanoes. I loafed on my book about the day of the bomb. About a year later, two days before Christmas, another story carried me through Ilium, New York, where Dr. Felix Honecker had done most of his work, where little Newt, Frank, and Angela had spent their formative years. I stopped off in Ilium to see what I could see. There were, no, there were no live Honickers left in Ilium, but there were plenty of people who claimed to have known well the old man and his three peculiar children, so I was wrong. I made an appointment with Dr. Asa Breed, vice president in charge of the research laboratory of the General Forge and Foundry Company. I suppose Dr. Breed was a member of my kaross, too, though he took a dislike to me almost immediately. Likes and dislikes have nothing to do with it, says Bachanon, an easy warning to forget. I understand you were Dr. Honecker's supervisor during most of his professional life, I said to Dr. Breed on the telephone. On paper, he said. I don't understand, I said. If I actually supervised Felix, he said, then I'm ready now to take charge of volcanoes, the tides, the migrations of birds and lemmings. The man was a force of nature no mortal could possibly control. Dr. Breed made an appointment with me For early next morning, he would pick me up at my hotel on his way to work. He said, thus simplifying my entry into the heavily guarded research laboratory. Though I had a night to kill in Ilium, I don't know why I said though. It's so I had a night to kill in Ilium. I was already in the beginning and end of the nightlife in Ilium. The Del Prado Hotel, its bar, the Cape Cod Room, was a hangout for whores. Um, What's interesting about reading these older books is that there are some things that people probably won't like as much anymore, especially since uh, we've gone, as a culture, well, here's the thing. I think that there's a part of culture that has moved to where it's more politically correct, but I think that if you spend time in the quote-unquote real world, you'll find that most people don't give a shit about that. But, this is supposed to be an intellectual podcast, and the intellectual bullshit of the world stipulates that we're supposed to look at certain groups a certain way and not label them as whores. But this is a book that was written a long time ago. As it happened, as it was meant to happen, Bachanon would say, The whore next to me at the bar and the bartender serving me had gone to high school with Franklin Honaker, the bug tormentor, the middle child, the missing son. The whore, who said her name was Sandra, offered me delights unobtainable outside of Place Pagali in Port Said. I said I wasn't interested, and she was bright enough to say that she wasn't really interested either. As things turned out, we both ha- overestimated our apathies, but not by much. Before we took the measure of each other's passions, however, we talked about Frank Ohnecker, and we talked about the old man, and we talked a little about Asa Breed, and we talked about the General Forge and Foundry Company, and we talked about the Pope and birth control, about Hitler and the Jews. We talked about phonies, we talked about truth, we talked about gangsters, we talked about business, we talked about the nice poor people who went to the electric chair, and talked about the rich bastards who didn't, we talked about religious people who had perversions, we talked about a lot of things, we got drunk. It's apparent to me, and it may not be apparent to you, but um, the protagonist and this Sandra lady who may or may not be an actual prostitute... They talked a lot at this bar, and they talked about a lot of things. Now, as an author, Vonnegut is playing with the audience here. That's why he says, we talked, we talked, we talked, we talked. It's supposed to be humorous, but it's also supposed to follow a certain rhythm. Because realistically, despite the fact that they are having a conversation, this guy does not care to talk to this woman, but it's the only thing to do. The bartender was very nice to Sandra. He liked her. He respected her. He told me that Sandra had been chairman of the Class Colors Committee at Ilium High. Every class, he explained, got to pick distinctive colors for itself in its junior year. And then it got to wear those colors with pride. What colors did you pick, I asked. Orange and black. Those are good colors. I thought so. Was Franklin Honaker on the Class Colors Committee, too? He wasn't on anything, said Sandra scornfully. He never got on any committee, never played any game, never took out any girl. I don't think he ever even talked to a girl. We used to call him Secret Agent X-9. X-9, you know. He was always acting like he was on his way between secret places, couldn't ever talk to anybody. Maybe he really did have a very rich secret life, I suggested. Nah. Nah," near the bartender he was just one of those kids who made model airplanes and jerked off all the time i resent that comment i jerked off all the time god damn it there's nothing wrong with that but uh notice the significance of x9 ice 9 get it Haha. Uh-huh. i think i have the perfect demeanor to read vonnegut you can't be too energetic when you read vonnegut it defeats the whole purpose Ah, oh, God, what an ugly city Ilium is. Ah, oh, God, says Bachanon, what an ugly city every city is. Sleet was falling through a motionless blanket of smog. It was early morning. I was riding in the Lincoln sedan of Dr. Asa Breed. I was vaguely ill, still a little drunk from the night before. Dr. Breed was driving. Tracks of a long, abandoned trolley system kept catching the wheels of his car. Breed was a pink old man, very preposterous, beautifully dressed. His manner was civilized, optimistic, capable, serene. I, by contrast, felt bristly, diseased, cynical. I'd spent the night with Sandra. Of course he did. Here's the question that I think we all wonder. Did he go down on her? Did he take a trip to Flavortown with Sandra? I mean, look. This is not an inappropriate discussion to have. He slept with a prostitute. I mean, as a prostitute of this small town in Ilium, New York, is she clean? How much action does she see? Is she just kind of the village bicycle? I mean, she seemed to be a big deal in high school, and, of course, the economy wasn't great in Ilium, and she didn't move out. She didn't find a guy to marry so she could be a housewife or whatever. She didn't... Go to college. Really, her prospects in this little town were pretty low, so she decided to become a prostitute. And Maybe she just just moonlights as a prostitute. What if she's a doctor by day? Breed was a pink old man. I already read that. My soul seemed as foul as smoke from a burning cat fur. I thought the worst of everyone, and I knew some pretty sordid things about Dr. Asa Breed, things Sandra had told me. Sandra told everyone in Ilium was sure Dr. Breed had been in love with Felix Honecker's wife. She told me that most people thought Breed was the father of all three Honecker children. I think about this a lot. How did affairs work before cell phones? I mean, I am all too aware that they happened. However, if you're in a married situation you wouldn't call it a married relationship. If you're married, Patrick, God, get it together. And let's say you work a nine-to-five. Now, a lot of guys would say, oh, I have to work late at the office, and then you go to pound town with some secretary or something. But what about your friend's wife? How do you pull that off without getting caught? I mean... Is this other guy working a shift to where you're able to leave work? Maybe you leave on your lunch hour and you just have a quickie. You have a nooner. But a whole-ass affair. I'm fascinated. I want to hear how it all happened. But how how could someone stay in a marriage, have an affair, possibly father three children by another man? And how could the guy pull that off? I mean... God, it's, it's inconceivable. And today, it's so much easier to have an affair, but at the same time, it's so much easier to get caught. Do you know Ilium at all? Dr. Breed suddenly asked me. This is my first visit. It's a family town. Sir, there isn't much in the way of nightlife. Everybody's life pretty much centers around his family and his home. That's a little sexist. That sounds very wholesome. It is. We have very little juvenile delinquency. Good. Ilium has a very interesting history, you know. That's very interesting. It used to be the jumping off place, you know. Sir? For the Western Migration. Oh, people used to get outfitted here. That's very interesting. Just about where the research laboratory is now was the old stockade. That was where they held the public hangings, too, for the whole county. I don't suppose crime paid any better then than it does now. There was one man they hanged here in 1782 who had murdered 26 people. I have often thought somebody ought to do a book about him sometime. George Minor Mokley. He sang a song on the scaffold. He sang a song he composed for the occasion. What was the song about? You can find the words over the historical society if you're really interested. I, I just wondered about the general tone. He wasn't sorry about anything. Some people are like that. Think of it, said Dr. Breed. 26 people he had on his conscience. The mind reels, I say. If there's ever a movie made of this, we got to get Adam Scott. As somebody, but I think he'd make a great protagonist. Skipping ahead to Chapter 15, Merry Christmas. The research laboratory of the General Forge and Foundry Company was near the main gate of the company's Ilium Works, about a city block from the executive parking lot where Dr. Breed put his car. I asked Dr. Breed how many people worked for the research laboratory. 700, he said, but less than a 100 are actually doing research. The other six hundred are all housekeepers in one way or another, and I am the chiefest housekeeper of all. When we joined the mainstream of mankind in the company street, a woman behind us wished Dr. Breed a Merry Christmas. Dr. Breed turned to peer benignly into the sea of pale pies and identified the greeter as one Francine Pefko. Miss Pefko was twenty, vacantly pretty and healthy a dull normal. Have you ever met someone like that? My wife and I refer to people who are almost attractive as Chick-fil-A because we've noticed that everyone who works at Chick-fil-A is just almost, almost attractive. It it hurts your brain and you'll notice that attractive people who work at Chick-fil-A don't work there for long. The people who last are only vaguely attractive. There was actually someone recently I am no longer this person's acquaintance um, as our journey together has ended. I don't even know this person's name. But she was fairly young to be in this little group of people. And I'm not going to say how I met this person or where I met this person. Because despite the fact that she wouldn't be listening... People who know her might be listening, but uh, she was vaguely attractive, as Vonnegut describes Miss Pevco, to the point where sometimes I would accidentally look at her, and when I would have to process what I saw after I looked away, because I, I don't really look at people for very long, it makes me uncomfortable. I would, I would think, is she pretty? and you can admire people. I've talked to my friend Chris, who's probably listening and jerking off in his car. I'm kidding, of course. He's, he's jerking off at home. But people who are attractive, you can admire them without wanting to fuck them, or you can admire them um, without being an ass and sexually harassing them. Uh, you could admire them without staring at them and thanks to social media you can find people and just stare at their pictures forever although that's really weird but you can admire people like a painting it's okay to think that someone is attractive just don't be weird about it but with miss Pevco, there's a reason why vonnegut noted that Pevco is vaguely attractive there's a reason why he put Sandra in the middle of all this for one thing he wanted the protagonist to get his nut Um, also Vonnegut is not known for having um, a healthy tolerance of the the female sex and gender I'll put it that way and if there's going to be an intelligent woman in any of his work she's got to be at least sexy you know give give a little titillation to the people so the thing about someone who is vaguely attractive is that you spend more time thinking about them than you would someone who's like totally hot that's just my theory because someone who is vaguely attractive you're trying to piece it together whether or not you like them or not i still don't know if i find scarlett johansson attractive and I know that's random to talk about, but I think we should talk about it. I think that Scarlett Johansson is attractive on some level, but I have never fantasized about her. And it doesn't matter if I've ever fantasized about her, and you don't need to know about it. However, I have looked at her sometimes, and I have thought, She's not pretty. And then some someone will say she's gorgeous. What's wrong with you? But there's something off. It's it's just something about it like Sophia Coppola to me on on like a, a very basic level is not attractive. But then at the same time she's kind of hot. You know you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? Don't don't act like you don't. No. We're not doing this today. It's like Hillary Swank on the office. Hillary Swank is a pretty lady. I'm not going to de- deny her that. However, she's just at that that level of vague quality. Yes, she's a famous actress. Not all famous actresses are hot. You know. I'm kind of that way with Melissa McCarthy. She is almost hot. And I can't... It's more than just personality, you know? I thought she was pretty on Gilmore Girls when I watched that with my mother as a kid. And now I can't stand that show. But anytime I see her in anything, except for Bridesmaids, she's scary in that movie. But there's something about that person who's on the the precipice of being attractive. And why am I going into this? Uh, Why? Because I feel it necessary to analyze Vonnegut and why he just puts this random Miss Pevco in here, Sandra. Why? Because it's in the book. And look, you might not want to listen to it. Skip a fucking head. I don't care. And I'll give you the significance of this whole rant about people who have never done anything wrong to me before. On page 34, Ms. Pevco says, When I used to come home from school, Mother used to ask me what happened that day, and I'd tell her, said Ms. Pevko. Now I come home from work, and she asks me the same question. And all I can say is, Ms. Pevco shook her head and let her crimson lips flap slackly. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If there's something you don't understand, urged Dr. Breed, ask Dr. Horvath to explain it. He's very good at explaining, he turned to me. Dr. Honecker used to say that any scientist who couldn't explain to an eight-year-old what he was doing was a charlatan. Then I'm dumber than an eight-year-old, Miss Pevco mourned. I don't even know what a charlatan is. See? Right there! There are no smart women in this goddamn book. And look, it's a product of its time and Vonnegut... It's brilliantly written, it's hilarious. I love this book. But you see what I mean? Why even note that Miss Pevco is attractive or vaguely attractive? And then this next page we have a reference to her breast. We climbed the four granite steps before the research laboratory. The building itself was of unadorned brick and rose six stories. We passed between two heavily armed guards at the entrance. Miss Pevko showed the guard on the left the pink confidential bag at the, top, the tip of her left breast. Not the top! The tip of her left breast. You might be saying... He's talking about her chest, not just her boobs, not her chesticles or her chit ladies (laughs) But look, by the way, if you're going to refer to any part of the woman's anatomy, never write down the term chesticles. If you're going to write about women in books, do it with respect. And the word breast is perfectly respectable. I can commend Vonnegut on that. He didn't say chesticles like I just did, like I'm five. Dr. Breed showed the guard on our right the black top secret badge on his soft lapel. See? The man is wearing a blazer or a jacket, and his badge is on his lapel. But Ms. Pevco's badge is on her boob. And look, I've made this whole big deal about Miss Pevco, and she's not even in the rest of the goddamn book. So, in Chapter Seventeen, we meet another woman, Miss Naomi Faust. Okay, I believe pretty recently we talked on the podcast about the the word Faust or devil or some shit like that, but there is a literary significance to the, the name Faust. If you're not familiar with Goethe, then you probably never read Faust or Faustus, however it's referred to. And, of course, there's a play based on it that's very good that was written a long time ago called Dr. Faustus. Anyway, Dr. Breed's secretary was standing on her desk in his outer office t- tying an accordion-pleated Christmas bell "'to the ceiling fixture. "'Look here, Naomi,' cried Dr. Breed. "'We've gone six months without a fatal accident. "'Don't you spoil it by falling off the desk.' "'See, this woman is treated like a buffoon. "'Miss Naomi Faust was a merry, desiccated old lady.' "'Okay. "'I suppose she had served Dr. Breed for almost all his life, "'and her life, too,' she laughed. "'I'm indestructible.' and even if I did fall, Christmas angels would catch me. They've been known to miss. Two paper tendrils, also accordion pleated, hung down from the clapper of the bell. Miss Faust pulled one. It unfolded stickily and became a long banner with a message written on it. Here, said Miss Faust, handing the free in to Dr. Breed, Pull it to the rest of the way of the tack end to the bulletin board. Let me read that sentence again. Pull it the rest of the way and tack the end to the bulletin board. That's better. Dr. Breed obeyed, stepping back to read the banner's message. Peace on Earth, he read out loud heartily. That's the most passion he's given on anything. Miss Faust stepped down from her desk with the other tendril unfolding it. Goodwill toward men, the other said. By golly, chuckled Dr. Breed. They've dehydrated Christmas. This place looks festive, very festive. And I remembered the chocolate bars for the girl pool, too, she said. Aren't you proud of me? Dr. Breed touched his forehead, dismayed by his his forgetfulness. Thank God for that, it slipped my mind. We mustn't ever forget that, said Miss Faust. It's a tradition now. Look, this is all insignificant to you, isn't it? It's it's insignificant to me, and yet I'm reading it. I'm enjoying it. I wish we had more books involving people and their boring office lives. The previous company that I worked for had a Christmas decorating thing. We had a competition for decorating trees in the elevator lobby, but we also were supposed to decorate our cubicles and i never participated because i thought it was stupid and i was there to work and i didn't feel the need to waste an hour of my time decorating bullshit on the wall that was just going to have to come down a few weeks later and you know it's interesting that that is probably dead now because so many jobs are going remote and uh, this lady dr uh, miss faust is uh is dead now even though she's a fictional lady i'm on page 39 and i'm exhausted by this we're on chapter 18 the most valuable commodity on earth when we got into dr breed's inner office i attempted to put my thoughts in order for a sensible interview i found that my mental health had not improved And when I started to ask Dr. Breed questions about the day of the bomb, I found that the public relations centers of my brain had been suffocated by booze and burning cat fur. Every question I asked implied that the creators of the atomic bomb had been criminal accessories to murder most foul. And that is the way a lot of people feel. And it almost feels that way every time I'm reminded of the terrible genocide of the people of japan specifically hiroshima if you've ever watched the the animated movie grave of the fireflies you feel a tremendous sense of guilt and you wonder if this war could have been ended without that bomb um but it was a power move on the United States part, and I've heard people say that it was an unnecessary, it was an unfortunate necessity, and even Japan, uh, their government, they they feel the same way too, or at least they state it. That that's what they state publicly, to my knowledge. And I've also heard that. Did I talk about this last week? That the bombings of Germany amounted to more deaths than. Uh, in Japan, with Hiroshima, I could be wrong. Dr. Breed was astonished, and then he got very sore. He drew back from me and he grumbled, "I gather you don't like scientists very much. I wouldn't say that, sir. All your questions seemed aimed at getting me to admit the scientists are heartless, conscienceless, narrow boobies, indifferent to the fate of the rest of the human race, or maybe not really members of the human race at all. That's putting it pretty strong. No stronger than what you're getting to put in your book, apparently. I thought that what you were after was a fair, objective biography of Felix Oniker. Certainly as significant a task as a young writer who could assign himself in this day and age. But no, you come here with preconceived notions about mad scientists. Where did you get such ideas? From the funny papers? From Dr. Onager's son, to name one source. Which son? Newton. I said. I had little Newt's letter with me, and I showed it to him. How small is Newt, by the way? No bigger than an umbrella stand. Said Dr. Breed, reading Newt's letter. Oh yeah, there's a whole uh, unpc thing about Newt and his uh, girl friend wife uh, being midgets. Uh, you're not supposed to say that word anymore. I'm saying it in relation to what um, Vonnegut said. I don't call people who are of a certain height midgets. And I, I'm i all offense about um, taking certain words out of my vocabulary, but if it offends someone, I'm not going to say it. Uh, so if I, if I offended you by saying the word midget, if you happen to be someone who is uh, legally um, a small person or a short adult or whatever terminology you would like me to use, uh, hit me up at one seven seven eight five nine five five four six. That is eight eight sixty six nine thirty two seven seven five nine. My wife talks so. Loudly on the phone, she's louder than the TV, and we've got a fucking sound bar in there. But I'm on page 44 now, with the chapter entitled Ice Nine, and after that I am giving up on this endeavor, and we will continue Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle in episode 101. There are several ways, Dr. Breed said to me, in which certain liquids can crystallize, can freeze. Several ways in which their atoms can stack and lock in an orderly, rigid way. That old man with spotted hands invited me to think of the several ways in which cannonballs might be stacked on a courthouse lawn, of the several ways in which oranges might be packed into a crate. So, it is with atoms and crystals too, and two different crystals of the same substance can have quite different physical properties. He told me about a factory that had been growing big crystals of ethylene, diamine, tartrate. The crystals were useful in certain manufacturing operations, he said. But one day, the factory discovered that the crystals it was growing no longer had the properties desired. The atoms had begun to stack and lock to freeze in a different fashion. The liquid that was crystallizing hadn't changed, But the crystals it was forming were, as far as industrial applications went, pure junk. How this had come about was a mystery. The theoretical villain, however, what Dr. Breed called a seed, he meant by that a tiny grain of the undesired crystal pattern, that seed, which had come from God only knows where, taught the atoms the novel way in which to stack and lock, to crystallize, to freeze. Now think about the cannonballs on a courthouse lawn or about oranges in a crate again, he suggested. What the hell with the courthouse lawn? And he helped me to see that the pattern of the bottom layer of cannonballs or of oranges determined how each subsequent layer would stack and lock. The bottom layer is the seed of how every cannonball or every orange that comes after is going to behave, even to an infinite number of cannonballs or oranges. Now suppose, chortled Dr. Breed, enjoying himself, that there were many possible ways in which water could crystallize, could freeze. Suppose that the sort of ice we skate upon and put into highballs, what we might call Ice One, is only one of several types of ice. Suppose water always froze as Ice One on Earth because it had never had a seed to teach it how to form Ice Two, Ice Three, Ice Four, and suppose he wrapped on his desk with his old hand again, that there was one form, which we call Ice Nine, a crystal as hard as this desk, with a melting point of, let's say, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or better still, a melting point of 130 degrees. All right, I'm still with you, I said. Dr. Breed was interrupted by whispers in his outer office, whispers loud and portentous. They were the sounds of the girl pool. The girls were preparing to sing in the outer office. Always girls getting in the way of these men talking. And they sang as Dr. Breed and I appeared in the doorway. Each of about a hundred girls had made herself into a choir girl by putting on a collar of white bond paper secured by a paper clip. They sang beautifully. I was surprised and mockishly heartbroken. I am always moved by that seldom-used treasure, the sweetness with which most girls can sing. The girls sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I'm not likely to forget very soon their interruption of the line. The hopes and fears of all the years are here with us tonight. How fortunate for me to read this in December, right before Christmas, huh? My wife and I just watched the Santa Claus and the Santa... We started the Santa Claus 2 this morning. We do this every year where we watch at least the first two Santa Claus movies. We watch Elf. We watch Charlie Brown. This year we're going to watch the year where there is no Santa or whatever the hell it's called. It's just a Christmas marathon of us trying to recapture our childhoods. Although this is something that I never did before she came along. So, yeah... The Marines march on. When old Dr. Breed, with the help of Miss Faust, had passed out the Christmas chocolate bars to the girls, we returned to his office. There he said to me, Where were we? Oh, yes. And the old man had asked me to think of United States Marines and a God forsaken swamp. Their trucks and tanks and howitzers are wallowing, he complained, sinking and stinking. "'Miasma and ooze!' he raised a finger and winked at me. "'But suppose, young man, that one marine had with him a tiny capsule "'containing a seed of ice nine, "'a new way for the atoms of water to stack and lock, to freeze. "'If that marine threw the seed into the nearest puddle, "'the puddle would freeze, I guess, "'and all the muck around the puddle, it would freeze, "'and all the puddles and the frozen muck?' They would freeze. And the pools and the streams and the frozen muck, they would freeze. You bet they would, he cried, and the United States Marines would rise from the swamp and march on. I'm tired of reading to you, goddammit. But I'm imagining this scene in my mind as you probably are. I'm noting who would play each character in a movie if it was ever made, what not. But why is Ice Nine important? Well, it's the cause of the mayhem and the climax of the novel, for one thing. But as I have said so many times, it's not the destination, it's the journey. So Ice Nine is just kind of a, it's not a MacGuffin, but it is a MacGuffin. It's a sort of a, an antagonist. That's building up in the novel. Like so many things. Dynamite for instance. It is discovered. And manufactured. With good intent. And then there's something called. Perversion of intent. Where someone takes that. Material. And they use it for. Evil purposes. And the thing about Vonnegut's writing. At this point in his career. Is that it's drifted away from the typical pulp science fiction that he was known for early on, and he wasn't very successful with, from my understanding. But it was after Slaughterhouse-Five that people started to really notice him, and it was generally younger people. One of the reasons why he grew a mustache and stopped showering as much is because he gained an audience, and that audience was pippies and college kids so he had to appeal to them and so he writes a novel like Breakfast of Champions and I'm sure there are people who think that's brilliant but it was in response to that audience. Cat's Cradle is before that and Cat's Cradle is the only reason why he obtained a master's degree as well because after his success as a writer they accepted his alma mater where he never got to complete his master's. They accepted it and they gave him his master's degree anyway. There are so many instances of, of academia sneering its nose at someone and they go and they do wonderful or terrible things. I'm sure you can think of a few examples, especially where World War Two is involved, but my alma mater, and you can Google this, I don't give a shit. Uh, There is a prominent politician, I'm not going to tell you who, so you can't Google it, ha ha ha, but he was a history professor in the same building where I took classes this year, and he was kind of neglecting his duties as a professor, but uh, he was trying to get tenure. And if he had gotten tenure, there was a high likelihood that he would have stuck with teaching and therefore given up on his political aspirations. But since he was denied tenure, he was allowed to grow and fester. And he is still um, almost politically relevant today. He was more relevant in the 90s especially where Bill Clinton is concerned. We didn't quite make it into what I would consider the really, really good part of Cat's Cradle. All of it's good to me, but uh, my favorite parts are coming up. And, of course, the second half of the novel is just a fun ride. There there are scenes here and there. What I like about this novel is that it's made up of these little scenes, and you can remember them pretty well. Um, There's a scene on an airplane that's pretty funny. In terms of writing a comical science fiction novel, I was very inspired and influenced by Vonnegut when I wrote Surviving New America. And I wish that I could write something more akin to the the truth of the American spirit as he did. Because if you were going to pit Anything up against it, uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is the great American novel of uh, the postmodern world. Uh, you could probably put soderhouse House Five up there. But he was playing with conventional genre in a way that a lot of authors don't do. Um, I've noticed, especially on Twitter with self-published writers, is that they're so focused on a specific genre and appealing to the audience of that genre, that they're not incorporating other elements as well. And maybe they are, maybe I'm mistaken, but more writers need to take that risk of putting in a little literary quality into their work. Because Vonnegut is the one science fiction author I know of that is taught in uh, an academic setting. Unless you're taking... A science fiction course. And he's probably going to be in that course as well. I don't know if this is a good episode or not. I'm, I'm doubtful. I'll, I'll find out tomorrow when I listen to it while I'm working. But you can tell I am low energy. I am exhausted. I hope that you have the best Sunday evening ever, if you're listening to this on a Sunday evening. You're listening to this on a Monday. I hope you have the best Monday ever. Tuesday can go fuck itself. Wednesday can go fuck itself. Okay? They're terrible days of the week. Thursday is just a tease. It's a whore. It's a gutta slut. Fuck you, Thursday. Friday is kind of the worst day of the week for me. But, aside from that, I hope you have... A wonderful, beautiful, transitional experience on this earth. And happy reading. Bye.